0: This is episode number 189 with Dr. Daniel Goleman. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thoughts from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? I just wanted to quickly remind you that if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Mine is Himalaya. So head on over to the app or Google Play Store to download it today. Don't forget to follow me once you're done so that you can listen to my episodes one day earlier than they're usually released. Pretty cool, huh? This episode is brought to you by Dear Universe, the brand spanking new book from the beautiful Sarah Prout. Now this book is your sacred invitation to call upon the energy of the universe to rise above fear, embrace love, and remember your innate superpowers. This book is full of 200 mini meditations for instant manifestations that will guide you on a path towards attracting the things, people, places, and experiences that you truly desire. It's also jam-packed with practical guidance, soulful exercises, and nuggets of wisdom all derived from Sarah's personal journey towards emotional and financial abundance. It will also teach you how to tune into and tap into the magnificent oneness of all life and energy that emanates every atom of the cosmos. Sounds pretty epic, huh? Sarah says that when you choose to guide your emotions, the universe will show up and support you to find success, love, and all of the things. And I couldn't agree with her more. This lady talks my language. So to get your hands on a copy of this epic book, head to sarahprout.com forward slash Melissa. Now I'll spell that out for you. It's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Prout is P R O U T dot com forward slash Melissa. So head there to get your hands on a copy of this epic book, Dear Universe, right now. Dr. Daniel Goleman is a psychologist who is best known for his worldwide best selling book, Emotional Intelligence but most recently he co-authored Altered Traits. Science reveals how meditation changes your mind, brain and body. He is a meditator since his college days and has spent two years in India. His first book, The Meditative Mind, the Varieties of Meditative Experiences is written on the basis of that research, offering an overview of various meditation paths. He has moderated several mind and life dialogues between the Dalai Lama and scientists, ranging from topics such as emotions and health to environment, ethics, and interdependence. His book, A Force for the Good, the Dalai Lama's vision for our world, combines the Dalai Lama's key teachings and true accounts of people putting his lessons into practice offering readers guidance for making the world a better place. Having worked with leaders, teachers, and groups all around the world, he has transformed the way the world educates children, relates to family and friends, and conducts business. And in today's episode, we chat about his meditation story and how he got to where he is today, the most profound meditation techniques he has tried, how meditation changes your mind brain and body why meditation is imperative for stress reduction the additions to add to your meditation practice to take it to the next level the top three tips for first-time meditators we also do a powerful meditation together which you guys are going to love we also talk about how to inspire mentor and teach our children and he gives us the top three tips from the Dalai Lama, plus so much more. And for everything that Daniel and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 189. But before we dive into today's epic episode, I want to read the review of the week. And this beautiful five-star review titled Life-Changing Podcast, comes from Amy Witz, And she says, I love Melissa's podcast because it literally changed my life. I'm healthier and happier than ever. It started with cleaning up my lifelong brain fog after listening to Dave Asprey's interview way back in the beginning. And now I'm pregnant and learning about how to care for myself with Dr. Stephen Cabral. I have just learned so much and I can't thank Melissa enough. Lots of love, Amy. Amy, thank you so much for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful and I'm so happy for you for being pregnant. That is so exciting. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes and leave that review right now. I would be so grateful. And without further ado, let's dive into today's epic conversation with Dr. Daniel Goldman. Welcome, Daniel. I'm so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: <laughs> I have the same thing for breakfast every morning. It's a combination of granola, nuts and seeds, berries, and a
0: chopped apple. Mmm, yum. Oh, that sounds delicious. Now, can you take us back? Tell us your story and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do. Like, how did this all unfold for you?
1: I got interested in meditation when I was an undergraduate. I was kind of jittery and nervous, and I heard that someone was teaching meditation, I thought, well, maybe that'll help my calm me down. And so I got, uh, then it was a mantra, and it did calm me down. In fact, I, it, I meditated twice a day, morning and then evening. Evening, I always fell asleep. So it really calmed me down. Then when I was in graduate school, I got a traveling fellowship that allowed me to go to India and meet the heavy-duty meditators. the real professionals. And these are yogis and nuns and monks and so on. And I spent about a year there. I, I was with um, Ram Dass' guru, Ninkro Baba, for quite a while. And he was quite extraordinary. And I met some other really amazing beings. One was a very humble lama named Kunu Rinpoche, who lived in a very simple, concrete, you know, small room with a wooden bed, and people would pop in to see him all hours of day or night. He was always happy to see whomever showed up. And then I found out later, he was the Dalai Lama's main teacher on compassion. He was really highly venerated, but he was very low-key about it. So when I went back to graduate school, that was at Harvard, I told them meditation really does something that we should pay attention to. It's a psychoactive substance, if you will. And I want to do my dissertation on it. And they thought that was the stupidest idea they'd ever heard. This was much too early. But my best friend in graduate school, Richard Davidson, and I managed to do research on meditation then. And at that point, we could only find two or three articles in the scientific literature to cite. Now, when we've come back and revisit it, we wrote a book called Science of Meditation in the Commonwealth Countries. There are now more than 6,000 peer review articles, scientific studies of and meditation. And we looked at the very, very best. Over the years since my being in India, I kind of graduated to Vipassana, which is the origins of what's called mindfulness in a popular form. And then now I do a kind of Tibetan version of that, which is a cousin of it called Dzogchen. And the research literature that we found actually maps that journey, there's lots of research on mindfulness, more than a thousand studies a year. Imagine that now. There are lots on insight meditation practice, which is the more intensive meditation type that mindfulness emerges from. And Davidson was able to fly about 14 professionals. These are heavy-duty yogis who are in the Dzogchen tradition, he brought them to his lab one by one and did brain scans and so on. These are people who have done 12,000 to 62,000 lifetime hours of meditation, quite a, a big number. And he found that the brains are different in quite amazing ways. So I would say that the my journey has also tracked the scientific study of meditation.
0: And so you've obviously tried lots of different types of meditation. What have you found has been the most profound for you.
1: That's exactly right. In fact, the first book which I wrote while in India, which I hope is very obscure because I'm kind of embarrassed about it now, but it mapped many different kinds of meditation, trying to compare and contrast to see where the commonalities were. So I was really looking around. I was kind of uh, on a shopping tour, if you will, when I was in India. I spent a total of two years. I went back on a postdoc. And at first I was doing what what probably seemed as yoga-related meditations, mantra meditations in a Hindu tradition. And then I segued to a a Buddhist practice. In fact, it was Nimkoli Baba, who was a Hanuman Bhakta, which is a Hindu form, who encouraged me to go to Bogaya and study what's called Vipassana, or mindfulness insight meditation. So that was a big segue. But I also looked at Sufi practices, I looked at Christian practices, Jewish meditation, because every major spiritual di- tradition turns out to have at its core what you could call a meditation practice, even though they're not always well known.
0: Mm. And you say that meditation can literally change your mind and brain and your body. How so?
1: Well, this comes from a survey of the, the excellent articles that we were able to find on meditation. And the very best do things like control for subjectivity. You know, if you're very positive about meditation and people ask, did it help you? You're going to find all kinds of ways in which it helped you. But if you're positive about some other thing, you're going to find all kinds of ways that that helped you. So what we like biological and neural brain indicators, we found, for example, That if you're a long-term practitioner, that's 1,000 to 10,000 hours over a course of a lifetime. If you do one day of meditation, it down-regulates, it quiets the genes that make for inflammation throughout the body. That was quite unexpected, and it's a very powerful finding. In fact, people in genetic science uh, were very skeptical. They they said, well, there's no way that a mental practice could control the genetic level, but it seems to. It doesn't change what genes you have, but how they operate. And then there's a lot of neural changes. One of them has to do with the goal of every spiritual tradition, which is almost universally ignored by scientists in the West. And that is to lessen attachment to itself. Every spiritual tradition says that's good, but it's almost never studied in the West. But when it has been studied, it seems to correlate with a lessening of connectivity to the part of the brain which actually is fixated on I, me, mine, all those preoccupations with ourself. Also, he was able to look at the brain of the most advanced meditator, the person who's at 62,000 hours before and after he went off on a four-year retreat, and he found that his brain was literally younger Than other brains of people his chronological age. That seems to be another benefit of meditation.
0: Oh my gosh, anything that's going to reduce inflammation and have that type of effect on us. It's like, sign me up. And I'm a massive fan of meditation too. And I've been doing the twice a day for 20 minutes in the morning and the afternoon for years now. And yeah, I just, I love it. I love it so much. That doesn't mean I'm always running to my meditation cushion every single day, but the feeling that I feel, it's just so beautiful. It's really beautiful. And you talk a lot about boosting your emotional IQ. So how do we do that? What does that mean? Can you unpack that for us?
1: Well, uh, let me first speak to meditation effects in a kind of normal, everyday. The, The payoffs that I told you are for people are pretty advanced. But if you're just beginning, it turns out that it changes how reactive your brain is to stress. It helps you sharpen attention and focus. But there are two misunderstandings I want to clear up at the outset that people who start to meditate often have. One is that it's about feeling really good. You may feel good, or you may feel bored, or you may feel pain. The payoff is what you said, that you, day to day, you gradually start to feel better and better. Not when you're meditating, when you're just doing what you do. The other thing is that sometimes people say, oh my God, I can't do this, when they first start. My mind is crazy, one thought after another. Actually, that's a good sign, not a bad sign. What it means is you're actually tuning in to your mind, which is one stream, it's a torrent of thoughts, We just don't usually notice. So to speak to your question about how this helps with your emotional insight or understanding, I think it tunes you in more to what's going on in your body, what the signals are of your emotions. In fact, it can help you attune to early signs, for example, that you're getting emotionally hijacked, that you're you're going to get really angry at this person. The sooner you tune into that, more quickly you can short-circuit it. You don't have to go through the whole process of getting really upset and getting really angry and saying something you regret later. You can see it coming, feel it coming, and then once you can say to yourself, oh, I'm getting angry, that actually takes energy away from the circuits for anger and puts them in the part of the brain that regulates anger. And you can do this with any negative, disruptive emotion. Now, your passions, you don't want to Stop that. You're the things that make you feel great, your awe, your excitement, and so on. It's the negative emotions I think you want to tune into.
0: Mm. And let's talk about stress because, oh my goodness, you know, the world that we live in now, you know, there's so many stresses around us. So how imperative is some form of meditation practice today?
1: Given how stressful life is today, I think all of us need a practice that can help us stay calm or calm down or at least get over the stresses that we've accumulated during the day. And it can vary from person to person what that practice is. But meditation has been found to calm the part of the brain that responds most actively to stress, which is called the amygdala. It's the brain's radar for something's wrong here. And it also activates feelings of anxiety, feelings of worry. So, because meditation calms the amygdala, it means that we react less often to triggers. When we do react, it's less strong. And if we do react, we recover more quickly. All of those are signs that the amygdala is quieting down. And they've all been found independently by researchers to be benefits of meditation.
0: Mm. Yes. So important. So important. I mean, for me, it's often those times where I am so heightened and there's resistance to sitting down and doing it. Then I do it and you're just like, oh, it feels so good. It's like this massive exhale. But you say that short daily doses will not get you the highest level of lasting positive changes, even if you continue it for years, without specific additions. Now, what are these specific additions that you speak about?
1: Well, there are two things generally that can help you get more benefit from meditation. One is doing intensive retreat. and By that, I mean going off somewhere where there's some good instruction and you don't have to get on email. You don't have to answer the phone. You don't have to get right back to someone's message. You can put all that aside and just focus on yourself. This is a luxury today to take this kind of time. But if you get deeply into meditation practice day after day after day, then you accrue a lot more hours of practice, which helps in any area of expertise. And you also can go more deeply into the meditation itself. The other thing that can help is advice from a teacher who can say, oh, well, you know, you can report what I'm doing, what I'm experiencing. And if the teacher is very seasoned, he or she can tell you, well, good, now try this or try that or try that. And that's called deliberate or smart practice. You know, you've heard the 10,000 hour rule of thumb that that gets you to, you know, Olympic level in, in any sport and so on. Actually, that's not true. It's a gradient, and it differs for different areas of expertise. What we found with meditation is there's no upper limit. The more people are able to do it over their lifetime, and even if you do 20 minutes twice a day, that's 40 minutes a day, and in a week it's 280 minutes, and in a month and so on, it adds up. And so you get a benefit that builds and builds and builds no matter what your basic practice is.
0: Mm. And that's, that's the thing. It's like this accumulation. It's just going to, yeah, continue to build. But what about for someone who's listening and they have never tried any type of meditation? Like the science is out there. You know, your book is a beautiful example of that, Altered Traits. There's so much information out there now on the benefits of meditation. Like, unless you've been living under a rock, like, you know, we all know that it's really great for us on so many levels, physically, emotionally, spiritually. But for someone listening who has never tried any type of meditation, what's a great place for them to start?
1: There are three ways I'd recommend. One is there are lots of very good apps. I don't have anything to do with any of them, but Headspace is a good one. 10% Happier is excellent. There are many, many. Anybody can download those. The second is to look for a teacher where you live. There are meditation teachers in most every city globally now. And the third is I could show you right now if you want.
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Okay. I'll show you a very simple meditation, but it's one that the research shows can be very powerful. This is a meditation on the breath, and wherever you are, whatever you're doing, put your phone aside, ignore it, and sit up in a dignified, upright posture, not tense, but not too relaxed. And the idea is to stay alert, can close your eyes, and just bring your attention to your breath. Be aware of every in-breath, and then every out-breath, and then the next breath, Be attentive to the whole breath. It might help to notice the sensation of the breath coming and going through your nostrils or rising and falling of your tummy, however you can do it. But just stay with your breath. Be fully aware of the inhalation, the full inhalation, the full exhalation. When your mind wanders and you notice it wandered, bring it back to your breath. Start with the next breath. Stay with it. So it might help, for example, to count. Maybe one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, three on the in-breath. You can go up to ten and then start over. Just whatever will help you stay with the breath. Now you can open your eyes, but that's the basic instruction for the most simple universal kind of meditation.
0: And everybody could do that every single person, even children. And it's a beautiful thing to teach children from a really young age. It's so important.
1: I'm glad you mentioned kids because I think kids today need this ever. The reason is that they've grown up without knowing a time that you couldn't lose yourself in a a little picture on a little device, you know, a phone. And our phones are our best friends and our worst enemies in terms of attention because they're full of distractions and kids today are growing up more distracted than ever by tech and i think it's a very important reason that we ought to consider teaching these attentional skills to kids because one of the first benefits is that your attention sharpens your concentration gets better and in an era when the technology is deskilling kids in attention I can think of nothing better than to teach them this very, very basic exercise in paying attention.
0: So good. It's so simple. It's so good. Even if you do it with them whilst you're driving or, you know, before bed or... What we do with my, I have a 13 year old stepson, and we take three deep breaths before we eat our dinner at nighttime. And we just, you know, feel our belly and we feel it rise and, you know, doing it before bed. There's so many little opportunities throughout the day whilst you're driving. But it's really interesting. I was driving the other day with my mom, and it's almost like it's automatic. You get in the car, and if I'm in the passenger seat, I'll pick up my phone, right? And I thought back. I thought remember when I was in high school and primary school and you'd go on drives and you didn't have phones. You didn't you didn't have phones to pick up and check emails and do all of these things and I thought, "Well, what did we do?" And I was like, "You either sat there in silence or you talked or you maybe you listened to music." And it was just a really nice reminder that I don't need to pick up my phone. It's You know, it's just such a different time that our children are growing up in now. And I'm interested to see the science and the data in the next 10 years on what this effect will have on our children. Because, you know, my generation was the last generation that grew up without phones in schools you know, mobile phones, that is. I mean, we, toward the end of my schooling, we got, you know, the Nokia 3210s and it was literally just for making phone calls and sending the occasional text, but it wasn't the smartphones like it is today. And I just, you know, I was chatting to someone the other day and they were saying that from the age of three, children are shoved a device under their nose and what is that going to do to their brain like you know so this is something that we need to think about you know maybe especially with children is you know if they're going to use it having time limits or things like that because you know the data's not out there yet on on you know we don't have 10 years or 20 years of data just yet So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm worried
1: because emotional intelligence, the ability to be self-aware, to tune into yourself, to manage your emotions in a good way, to empathize, to connect with someone, to handle your relationships, all of those skills are learned in life. And the brain of a child is designed to learn how to master them by interacting with the people around them. And kids spend fewer hours of their lives today interacting with the people around them for exactly the reasons you mentioned, which is why I'm a big advocate of putting programs in what's now called social-emotional learning in every school. So it's a way of teaching these basic human skills. Tune into yourself. Manage your emotions well. Empathize. Connect with other people. Teaching these to kids Uh, in a way that they can understand it. You know, there are curricular, hundreds of them now, kindergarten through till they go to university. And they teach these skills in a developmentally appropriate way. And they find that if they do, kids pick them up. They love this because it helps them get along with other kids, for one thing, which is more and more important to them. But it also is uh, teaching them the basic skills for life, for being a good spouse, for being a good parent, For being a good worker or leader, it's the same skill set, and I think we need to get more intentional about it for the very reasons you mentioned, Melissa.
0: Mm, Yeah, and so apart from bringing this sort of meditation, even something like the little breath meditation that we just did, into our home and teaching our children, what else can we be doing?
1: Well, it's good to realize that every parent is a child's first coach or mentor or teacher. Mm. In this domain, you can help your child get better at attention by having them do the simple attention exercise that I shared with you. You can help them realize, for example, the consequences of how they act on how another person feels. That's a lesson in empathy. You can model being emotionally intelligent, being uh, present in the moment, being empathic, because kids pick up what a parent does. Without a parent having to say so, because kids watch the people around them. So I would think, I think every parent is a natural teacher in this domain. But I also think maybe it's time to get even more intentional and specific about it.
0: And how can we do that just by being aware that that's what we're wanting to do?
1: Well, you can think about what teachable situations you're in with your child. So, for example, if a, another kid gets upset because of something your kid did, you can help your child see what happened from that other kid's perspective and understand why they're upset. In other words, you can seize the moment. If, if uh, you have to wait in line for something, then that's a very important lesson because it's teaching the ability to be patient. It's actually technically called cognitive control to defer gratification because you're going to get rewarded later. So life presents itself with situations where a parent can easily help a child master a skill that they're going to need during life, during the rest of their life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking back to what meditation has really done for me and over the years. And I think what you spoke about before, it's really allowed me to Almost be the observer instead of reactor in situations. So, in the past, when something may have triggered me and I would react, meditation has almost allowed me to expand that time, that space in between the trigger and the reaction. And so, instead of getting triggered and then reacting, I You know, maybe I feel a sensation in my body, then I can observe it and respond as opposed to react. So I feel like for me over the years, meditation has taught me how to respond. It's expanded that time between the trigger and the reaction and it's allowed me to respond instead of react because I know for me, it really felt like that split second was almost so quick that I couldn't catch it. But by cultivating, by by doing a regular meditation and having that self-awareness, it has allowed me to really witness, you know, witness these situations as opposed to being in them. Does that make sense?
1: Well, that's very beautiful. You know, Melissa, the definition of maturity is widening the gap between that emotional impulse and how you react. And as you say, you don't want to react blindly. You want to respond. I have to recommend a book by my wife. It's called Emotional Alchemy. And it's about, it lists the 10 most common maladaptive emotional habits, like a kind of hair trigger response to somebody not paying enough attention to you. You know, you feel they're not empathizing, things like that. And how you can use mindfulness in exactly the way you're talking about to recognize the reaction that wants to happen, and then pausing, and then responding in a better way, in a way that's going to be more effective in that situation. Because the reason these habits are dysfunctional, these emotional habits, is that they make us respond or react blindly the way that we have over the years, but not necessarily in a way that helps our relationships. So I applaud you. I think you're exactly on track.
0: Mm, thank you so much. And it's, it's beautiful to witness it. It's beautiful to kind of almost like put yourself, you know, up above yourself and watch down at what's unfolding in front of you. And that's how I feel. It's more apparent with people that are very close to you, with your parents or your children or your partner. And I almost like find it fascinating and interesting now to be that observer.
1: The best gauge of how you're doing is actually how people around you experience you because we, we can't always see how we're being. We have blind spots. We have It's hard to be self-aware in the sense of seeing yourself as others see you, but that actually is the most objective metric for how you're doing. And in the research, we always looked for, you know, the research in the book Altered Traits that you mentioned, we always look for studies that don't just depend on how people think they're doing, my own sense, but rather how people around them evaluate them, because then you get a more honest look.
0: Mm. Yeah. Now, is there anything that you're working on within yourself at the moment? We're always evolving and growing. That's why we're here. So what's something that you're working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment?
1: Well, I have a a history of being very conscientious, almost duty bound, as it were. That's one reason I've, you know, gone to the schools I've gone to and written the books I've written because I keep to a schedule and I'm trying to have more fun or joy, which is not necessarily from finishing your to do list.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Fun and play. That's definitely one of my intentions this year is to just have so much more fun and play and joy and be silly and just you know, do those things that bring joy to myself. So we're on the same page there. All right. I have another question for you. Now, you mentioned Emotional Alchemy, the book by your wife, but... Yeah. Let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the entire world. Now, besides your wife's book and besides your books, because that's a given, they should be in the school curriculum. What is one other book that you would choose?
1: I think I re- might choose Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm, so good. It really makes the point that being in touch with a deeper meaning in what you do, a purpose in your life, a sense of mission helps you not only have a moral compass so that you have a real answer to the question, is what I'm about to do in keeping with my sense of meaning and purpose and values, but it also orients you on a life path. So it helps you immediately in the moment in making decisions, but it also helps guide you towards something that will matter to you, that will resonate with you years later. And, uh, you know, I've I've gone to my uh, college reunion recently, and I met people who said, like one guy said, well, you know, I was a very successful lawyer. I loved it for 25 years, and I hated it for 15. In other words, Didn't find any meaning in it. He made a lot of money. Well, that's nice. But then everything was empty. He worked so hard. His wife left him. You know, his health suffered and uh, he got richer and richer. But for what? And I think having a grounding in a mission that's greater than yourself, some greater good, is one of the best things you can do for yourself and for everyone else.
0: I absolutely agree. And that is such a great book. It was so powerful, my goodness! It was so powerful. I had to actually stop reading it at nighttime before bed because I would then have these full-on dreams about me being in these concentration camps. And so i I had to just I had to read it in the morning so I wasn't having these. I'd wake up and I'd be like, "Oh my god!" I felt so real, you know, that I was there.
1: It is a hair raising book because uh, Victor Frankel was in a, a german a Nazi concentration camp, and he he points out how having a purpose, having a sense of meaning helped him and a few other people that he knew there survive under the most dire conditions and he does rather graphically explain what those conditions are
0: I know. <laughs> I know, I know. So maybe read it during the day unless you are okay with that and don't, won't have vivid Nazi concentration camp dreams like I did. Okay, so I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and how they set themselves up for a successful day. And I love hearing about people's morning routines. So can you talk us through your day, how your day unfolds, and in particular your morning routine? Sure.
1: So my morning routine has changed as I become more and more serious about meditation. Doing the book, you know, altered traits, how meditation changes your brain, body, and mind, really convinced me to try to be a more industrial strength meditator. So I get up sometimes around six or seven. I make some tea and I meditate. And sometimes I'll meditate for hours. Uh, then I come down and I have. Breakfast with my wife. she might be on lunch by then, and then the day starts and it can be very different. Uh, today I work with my wife on a workshop we're going to give together, and sometimes it's phone calls or whatever it is. I try to go for a, a long walk. I live at the top of a hill, but I can walk down to a river and then back. That's about an hour. Sometimes I'll call my family or I have some uh, other calls as I'm walking, not always. And then uh, often we go out to dinner together, my wife and I. We're going to do that tonight. And then we go to bed.
0: Mm, So beautiful. So lovely. What are three things you're most recently grateful for?
1: One is my wife. Another is my kids. And a third is the luxury of having flexible time in my life to do what matters most.
0: How many children do you have?
1: I have two sons in their 40s and six grandchildren.
0: Oh, my goodness! These are
1: one and three for the younger set and twelve to twenty for the four older ones.
0: oh my wow. that's that's amazing. And did you teach your sons how to meditate? Like, how did you, you know, share and pass on this knowledge and wisdom to them? You know, I
1: don't like forcing kids to do anything like meditate or go to this church or whatever. So I showed them how to meditate when they were very young. And one son decided to go to a three-month meditation course. The other son really hasn't taken it up. But his kids, interestingly enough, some of his kids have because they've grown up with... I have friends who are meditation teachers. And I think it's been kind of osmotic. It's in the air around them.
0: Yeah, I think often as well, just us being the example and them witnessing us meditating and watching how we move through our day. Like you said, children learn by witnessing, not so much being told what to do. So, yeah, I love that. I think that's really important to remember. They're not our easels and they're not there for us to, you know, instill our beliefs. They're their own sovereign being and all we can do is live by example.
1: Yeah, it's one of the hardest lessons for a parent to learn is that your kids are not your clones. (laughs) They're their own people and they will find their own life path and you can make uh, different choices available to them, but you can't make the choices for them.
0: Yeah, it's a big one to remember, isn't it? I try. (laughs) Me too, me too. Okay, I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, what is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: You can meditate 10 or 20 minutes.
0: Perfect. What is one thing that we can do for our wealth, so more abundance in all areas of our life?
1: You could meditate 10 or 20 minutes.
0: Love it. And what is one thing we can do today for more love in our life?
1: Pay full attention to the people you really care about. Beside your phone, beside your inner distractions, and tune into them. Really connect.
0: Mm, beautiful. It's so important. Now more than ever, I feel like we are so disconnected. and But more than ever, we're craving connection. We're craving community and tribe in real life, not so much online, but we really do have to almost relearn how to connect and put down our phones and and be with the people around us
1: and make it a priority make it show that it matters put the time aside and you know we almost have to put it in the calendar like here's the time i'm going to connect with my neighbors with my family if we don't it it tends to drift away
0: yeah absolutely i'm very very intentional about that and all of my friends say you're so good at that Melissa like I'm the one that always is organizing things and you know organizing dinners and things like that and I love doing it but it's it's really because I I love community and I want to bring community together and I want to share beautiful food with people that I love and have these conversations and have people in my home and When we do have those moments where we have people there, no one's on their phone, like all of their phones are in their bags or in the car. And it's so beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. And I think we need to do more things that make us forget to look at our phone. So whether that's going for a hike or even watching something like a concert or going to the ballet or even to the cinema, doing those things that where you forget to look at your phone, I think they're really important. And just being with people, it's so important, just stopping and listening. Everyone just wants to be heard and feel held. Every single person just wants to be heard and feel held. But so many people are so busy, 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 rush, 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 that they, you know, say that they don't have time. But this is what we're all craving now more than ever in this disconnected, fast-paced, stressful world.
1: You know, you just made me realize one of the best indicators of whether you're really connecting with the people you're with is if there's no phone inside. Yes. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And I love that. I love when people come over for a lunch or for a dinner to our house and my phone is in the cupboard or and it's on silent in the cupboard and then I get up and and look at the clock on the oven and 3 hours has gone by and you're just like what wow it's just I love that feeling so much and we've we've just sat there over the dinner table and talked and connected for 3 hours straight like that to me is the best
1: that's a sign of flow. When time dissolves, you don't pay any attention to the clock because you're so in the moment. You're so with what's going on. It's a, it's a very uh, nutritious way to spend your time.
0: Mm, I love that word, nutritious. It is. It's very nutritious. And then you add nutritious conversations, nutritious people, and nutritious food. It's like, boom. Right. So this has been so great. I've absolutely loved our conversation and you have really inspired me to continue on my meditation path. I'm about to go and embark on a rounding retreat just by myself, which will be really beautiful. And I have thought about doing Vipassana toward the end of the year, which, yeah, I'm I'm still like a little bit hesitant about. And not 100% sure why I'm hesitant about it, but yeah, I'm still a little bit hesitant about the whole process of Vipassana, but I'm very looking forward to going on my five-day rounding retreat.
1: It's a big leap because for one thing, it's in silence usually. That means that you're, not talking to, you're with people, but you're not talking to them. And that can be hard for people. And then spending that much time in silence, just looking at your mind, not easy, but very rewarding.
0: Mm, I can imagine. Holy moly, I can imagine. Now, is there anything else, Daniel, that you want to share? Like anything else that I haven't asked you about or any last parting words of wisdom?
1: You know, I, I think you really have covered the territory quite well. I'll leave you with something I heard the Dalai Lama say, which really hit home, it has to do with purpose and meaning. He said, This was at a conference at MIT, interestingly. He said, when you face a decision, ask yourself, who benefits? Is it just you or a group? Is it just your group or everyone? And is it just for now or for the future too?
0: I love that. So important. I'm a massive believer in service, and I want to – be of service to you. So, how can I and the listeners serve you today?
1: Oh, that's very kind. I think by getting in touch with some greater good that you can do. I, I did a book called The Force for Good with the Dalai Lama for his 80th birthday. And he suggested people do three things, uh, which I'll suggest. One is become get some inner composure, meditation is one way, very powerful. The second is to adopt an attitude of caring or concern or compassion. And the third is to act now for a greater good in whatever way you can. And we all have our own ways. We all have our sphere of influence. We all have uh, different kinds of positions, different opportunities to help. But any of that is something that I would be very happy to hear about.
0: Mm, Beautiful. I love those tips. Thank you so much. This has been so amazing and such a beautiful reminder. And your book Altered Traits is so amazing. We'll link to it in the show notes and all of your other books and all of the amazing work that you're doing in the world. So thank you so much for for doing it, for doing the research, for sharing it with the world. I'm so grateful there's people out there like you that are blazing this trail. So thank you so much.
1: Well, Melissa, I'm going to Get right back to you, and thank you for doing this amazing podcast and uh, bringing this dimension of life into the forefront. I'm very, very grateful, and thank you for having me as a guest.
0: You're so welcome. Wowzers, I got so much out of today's episode and am even more inspired to show up to my meditation cushion every single day. And I just loved it. I loved the reminders. They're so potent. And if you loved it too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. Don't forget, if you want to become a manifesting magician, head to SaraProut.com forward slash Melissa to get your hands on a copy of Sarah Prout's epic new book, Dear Universe. And don't forget to come and join the Private MA Tribe Facebook group where we can share insights from this episode. Plus, you can tell me who else you want me to get on the show. It's epic. And you can also share anything else Regarding mastering your mingle or open wide, it's a really sacred and safe space where we can come together. You will also get some extra love and support personally from me that I won't be offering anywhere else. And one thing I get asked a lot is where can I find my tribe? Where can I find my like minded soul sisters? This is it. So head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash tribe to join now. And for everything that Daniel and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 189. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. Another thing that I wanted to mention before I go is that if you haven't got my book, Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships and Soulful Sex, All you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide to get your copy now. And when you're there, you will also get access to the free open wide video masterclass that Nick and I created especially for you. And it's totally free. It's epic. You do not want to miss it. Trust me. It's juicy. And we go deep. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes and you leave me that five-star review right now. I would be so grateful. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this particular episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media. You can email it to them. You can text it to them. Just do whatever you have got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.